You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Star Trek Wines. Visit StarTrekWines.com today for limited edition Chateau Picard, Ryzen Varietals, and many more. Use our special code Roddenberry at StarTrekWines.com for an exclusive United Federation of Planets medallion. This episode is also sponsored by Masterclass. This holiday, give one annual membership and get one free. Go to masterclass.com slash mission log today. That's masterclass.com slash mission log. Terms apply. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 472, Deadlock. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we examine an episode of Star Trek, searching for the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein, and see if it withstands the test of time. This week, Deadlock, the one where a freak spatial distortion turns Voyager into its own version of a quantum Chinese finger trap. Like there's any other kind. <laughs> I will be back with trivia for you in just a moment, but first, Norman will let all of you know how to stay in touch with us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here is John Champion with this week's trivia. All right. Deadlock was written by Brandon Braga. And honestly, are you surprised? I am it's surprised. A, <laughs> you're just shocked. <laughs> shocked, I tell you. Uh, look, it's an episode designed to mess with perception, uh, all, all built around a high-concept sci-fi hook and that's got Brandon's name all over it. It was directed by David Livingston, and we all know very well by now David's long history with Star Trek. This episode was a unique challenge for him, though, because he was almost too good. The pace of his directing and the efficiency of the scenes meant that even with the full script, they wound up more than eight minutes short in the edit. I mean, That's nearly an entire act. So while the episode was being filmed, the writers were busy creating filler that then was also running short. So in total, they went over by a day and a half shooting just to have enough material to complete the episode. Here's a little bit of inside info. Brannon went to Kent State University, which is why you hear it mentioned in the script. And, of course, we have an action-heavy, stunt-heavy episode here, and it's kind of cool to see that little moments were created on the fly. So in the last act, that role that Harry Kim does in sickbay, that was Garrett's suggestion in the moment. David Livingston liked it enough that they worked it in. And uh, here's a cool special effects note. The Vidian ship that we see in this episode is large and impressive, and we've actually seen it before, though you probably don't remember. It was an early CG design in Voyager and first used in Parturition. But the magic of CG is that you can easily rebuild, reconfigure, and recolor into something new without destroying the original. And that's what we have here. New paint job, some parts removed, and voila, a Vidian ship. Now let's talk about our guest stars. We're pretty light on guest stars this week. We do, of course, have Simon Billig returning as Hogan and Nancy Hauer returning as Samantha Wildman. Outside of those two, we have a run-in with some new Vidians. One of them is a surgeon, played by Bob Clendenin. Now, this is his only Trek TV work, but in a brief scene in the 2009 Star Trek film, you can see him working in the shipyard. Incidentally, he and Nancy Hauer would work together again when he appeared in the cast of the comedy Ten Items or Less, a show that she created and directed. Then there's the Vidian commander, played by Ray Procia. Now, this is Ray's very first professional TV credit, and he hasn't stopped working since then. In addition to guest roles on a number of series, he had recurring gigs on Suits, The Inn, and The Man in the High Castle, and this is his only Star Trek credit. 
I don't like being sucked out into space. I love it. Is Harry ready for a deadlock holiday? Prologue. A very pregnant Samantha Wildman is on break in the mess hall and is approached by Neelix who desperately needs her help. However, as she is taking stock of the repairs needed for his galley and replicator, Sam has a contraction. A big one. Neelix rushes her to sickbay, announcing to all, We're gonna have a baby. Seven hours later, Sam is still in labor as the doctor and Kess attend to her extreme discomfort. On the bridge, Janeway and her bridge crew anxiously await any news. The captain remarks that childbirth takes as long as it takes, to which Tuvok adds that his wife was in labor for 96 hours. That's Vulcan for be patient. Suddenly, Tuvok censors Detective Vidian's subspace communications as he confirms that Voyager is entering a Vidian-populated G-type star system. Janeway immediately orders Tom to set a new course as far from the Vidians as possible, which takes him through a nearby plasma drift. Upon entry, Sam feels an immediate and painful change in her labor. The baby's exocranial ridges have caused internal complications, forcing the doctor to beam out the baby into a special incubator. The baby is a girl, healthy for the most part, and just needs a little osmotic pressure therapy just to make sure. Without warning, Voyager's warp engines stall, antimatter is being drained, and power fails shipwide. Janeway suggests proton bursts will sustain the warp core, but before Bolana can act, Proton bursts appear from nowhere and critically damage areas across the ship, including the bridge and sickbay, where the doctor has to rely on backup power to keep the baby alive, as severely injured crew members pour through the doors and desperate for medical help. Act 1. The doctor quickly assesses and treats every injured crewman while Kess keeps watch over the baby. However, the erratic proton bursts are still racking the ship, this time in the mess hall, sending more injured to sickbay. In main engineering, Bellana is at a loss as to the source of these proton bursts, which she never initiated in the first place. Regardless of the source, they are causing catastrophic shipwide damage, including a newly formed hull breach on Deck 15, which Harry tells Janeway he can fix with a portable force field generator he's been working on. Back in sickbay, the doctor is in the midst of treating his newest round of injuries, including Neelix, who tries to reassure Sam that her baby will be fine. Suddenly, another proton burst hits sickbay, causing the doctor's program to blink offline, and just enough for even him to be alarmed. Bellana, Harry, and Hogan all converge on Deck 15 to seal the hull breach, while Tuvok, Chakotay, and Janeway formulate a plan to magnetize the hull to give them some insulation from the proton bursts. Tragically, the situation on Voyager turns darker by the moment as the doctor is unable to save Sam's baby. But that's not all. During their efforts to repair the hull breach on Deck 15, Bellana couldn't save Harry from being sucked out into space, while Hogan is severely burned by an exploding panel, but is able to contact Sickbay for help. And as soon as Kess arrives to aid Hogan, she runs towards Bellana, who watches Kess vanish in the middle of the corridor. Act 2. Bellana clinically informs Janeway that Harry is dead and that Kess disappeared right in front of her eyes on Deck 15. She also reports to have discovered a spatial rift exactly where Kess disappeared, and after throwing a piece of broken conduit through it, her scans indicate a breathable atmosphere on the other side, meaning Kess may still be alive. After Balana's report, Janeway orders Tuvok to give her the full damage assessment, which is grim. The ship is catastrophically damaged, and the crew has taken heavy casualties. However, Janeway is truly shaken for a moment upon hearing the death of Sam's baby, but forces her grief aside for now in order to salvage what is left of her ship. She orders the repair of 632 microfractures as top priority and sends Tom to help the EMH in sickbay as the number of wounded continues to rise. Chakotay tries to magnetize the hull in order to dampen the proton bursts, but when the field collapses, a massive burst fills the bridge with fire and smoke, forcing everyone to evacuate. As Janeway heads towards the turbo lift, she sees a phantom of herself in her chair, just as another Janeway watches a haggard and wounded phantom version of herself flee towards the turbo lift from Voyager's bridge, and one that seems to be completely normal and undamaged. On this second bridge, this other Janeway, or Janeway 2, asks a very much alive Harry Kim, or Harry 2, to scan for spatial anomalies. 
Harry 2 does find a millisecond fluctuation while the rest of his sensors are monitoring a three-hour proton burst procedure for Balana. Meanwhile, in Sickbay 2, a very serene Samantha Wildman cradles her very healthy baby girl. Janeway arrives shortly afterwards and is hoping to hear the story from her unconscious guest, who, according to Kest 2, is identical to her in every microcellular way. Act 3. As soon as she regained consciousness, Kess 1 recounts her experience for everyone in sickbay right up to the moment when she ran through the spatial rift on Voyager 1. Janeway 2 believes Kess 1 because of the unique details she has been able to confirm, specifically about the divergence that happened when they entered the plasma drift. Now armed with more knowledge, Janeway 2 orders her Balana to stop the proton bursts immediately, as Kess 1 says that they are damaging her Voyager. Later on the bridge, Chakotay 2 explains to his Janeway, Balana, and Harry that after running a quantum analysis, which Balana confirmed with her own multispectral analysis, that the plasma drift was also a subspace divergence field, meaning Voyager was duplicated in every possible way save one, antimatter, which according to a Kent State University experiment cannot be duplicated, meaning both Voyagers are drawing upon the same source of antimatter to keep their ships functional. However, the proton bursts from Voyager 2, which sustained their antimatter, severely damaged Voyager 1. So to find a way forward to fix the situation, Janeway 2 orders Herbalana to find a way to contact Voyager 1, while Harry outfits Kess 1 with a phase discriminator to protect her way back through the spatial rift. And as she waits for the device in sickbay, Kess 1 can't help but confess to the EMH how guilty and helpless she feels about Sam's baby dying in sickbay. But the EMH is constant in both dimensions, and he knows his counterpart is just as gifted to take care of his ship. After a lot of teching the tech, Janeway 2 and her Balana establish a partially stable comm signal that breaches the spatial subspace, allowing both Janeways to communicate with one another. They establish an immediate trust and understand what is required of them and their respective crews in order to neutralize Divergence Field and merge both ships together as one. And after teching even more tech, Janeway 1 coordinates with both Balanas, who then synchronizes their respective depolarization pulses in order to stop the spatial drift between ships. However, this procedure only worsens the issue, forcing them to abort the process entirely. With the comm system down and antimatter bleeding out at an alarming rate, Janeway 2 orders her Harry to rig another device so she can join Kess 1 and cross the spatial rift over to Voyager 1. Act 4. After successfully crossing over to Voyager 1, Kess 1 tells Janeway 2 that the damage is far worse than she remembered. Janeway 1 is in main engineering, trying to figure out how to fix the antimatter hemorrhaging as Janeway 2 arrives and proposes that they talk privately to see if they can find a viable path forward. Both Janeways climb atop the warp core to the upper level of main engineering for a little more privacy, as they both know their respective crews are on edge. Each of them propose theory after theory after plan after plan as to how to best try and save both ships and crews, but they know each other far too well and both realize that no matter the solution, the end result is inescapable. Only one Voyager, only one ship and crew can survive the antimatter leak, and Janeway 1, knowing that her ship is the one that is the most critically damaged, is the ship and crew that will have to be sacrificed so that Voyager 2 can survive as the ship that is most intact to endure the rest of its mission to get home. But Janeway 2 is determined to try and find a way to save both ships as long as the antimatter can hold out, which gives her at least 15 minutes. However, once Janeway 2 is aboard her ship, both Voyager sensors pick up a Fadian ship on approach, which drops out of warp and is on an intercept course. To make matters worse, both Voyagers are without defensive capabilities at this time, a fact that Vadian sensors have confirmed as they fire a hypothermic charge at Voyager, but hitting only Voyager 2. The Vidian ship presses the advantage as Tuvok 2 tells his Janeway that they have grappled onto the ship and are cutting into the hull. Act 5. Resisting the Vidian's boarding of Voyager 2 is futile, as they easily subdue and harvest their victims with Borg-like efficiency. Tuvok and another security officer are the first to fall, and then Tom Paris and two others shortly after in another corridor. As the Vidian's boarding party systematically cut a path through Voyager, the Doctor erects a force field to protect everyone inside and promises Samantha Wildman that he will do everything he can to protect their baby. 
On Voyager 2's bridge, Janeway and Chakotay watch helplessly as the ship falls even further to the Vidian boarding party. After reestablishing their comlink, Janeway 1 offers to send aid to Janeway 2, but she refuses because in doing so may expose Voyager 1's presence to the Vidians, putting them at risk. No. Janeway 2 has made up her mind to destroy the ship before any more of them fall prey to Vidian organ harvesting, and decides to send Harry Kim and Samantha Wildman's baby through the spatial rift because to Janeway 2, this only seems fair. She also makes Janeway 1 promise to get her crew home. And with that, Janeway 2 breaks contact, orders Harry to collect Sam's baby, and get across safely to Voyager 1. After dodging a few Vidian patrols, Harry sneaks his way to sickbay. With a few deft combat maneuvers, he manages to dispatch the two guards, but only to find the baby's incubator empty and giving way to despair. Just then, the doctor emerges from his office and hands over the baby, along with specific treatment for Harry to relay to the other EMH, who will understand. Harry races to the spatial rift on deck 15 as the Vidians reach the bridge, only to be met with a cordial hello and a computerized countdown to the final seconds of the auto-destruct sequence. Voyager 2 explodes, taking the Vidian ship and all hands with it. All except Voyager 1, which survived the spatial explosion and is now free of the divergence effect. As critical repairs are underway, it seems that Harry 2's arrival has literally and figuratively brought new life to Voyager, in both himself and Samantha 2's baby, who Sam 1 has adopted as her own. And after a short period of reflection between Janeway and Tuvok about the paradox of which Voyager was to be sacrificed, Janeway takes her leave from sickbay and is followed by Harry into the corridor, and he knows that he's not this Voyager's Harry, and she's not his captain. Harry admits it's all kind of weird, which to Janeway replies, we're Starfleet officers. Weird is part of the job. The end. Norman, I'm pretty sure that, you know, you had two Tech the Techs in your recap. I feel like this is a script that would have about 900 Tech the Techs throughout. And they just had to go through, like, uh, I don't, quantum this and then that. I, like, <laughs> there's yeah. just so much. It was a lot. Yeah. It was a lot. Yeah. And that's the only way that I could compress that much dialogue is just to use it's the only our way. signature phrase. It's the only way. Yeah. 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 But well done. Did you know, I mean, I'm not sure if it's the longest opening that we've mm-hmm. seen so far, but, you know, when I was going over the, the opening prologue, you know, for mm-hmm. the notes, I clocked it at about seven minutes and like five seconds. Uh, yeah, longest for season two, for sure. I don't know if it's the longest in Voyager history. I'd be curious to see how that stacks up. I'm sure that the stats are out there, but yeah, longest for so season two. So far, it two. feels like the longest, yeah. And, and interesting pacing because you start out with that calm stuff and then go right into the action in uh, Act 1. Usually mm-hmm. they flip that and they do the heavy action and the teaser to you know get you into it, get you on edge. But instead they decided to focus in the teaser primarily on Samantha. Oh my God, please have the baby already, Wildman. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And also, Neelix, come on, man. You don't have to ask a pregnant lady to do stuff. Oh, my God. How tone deaf. How cool it was just That was so odd. Like, oh, yeah. by the way, get on your knees and work on this heating unit for my stove. And oh, by the way. <sighs> I mean, you know, uh, yeah. I, See, look, look the, only, the only way to fix that, <laughs> the only way to fix that in the script, unless you're just trying to make Neelix that clueless which sure maybe that was the choice i still think it looks bad i have him catering to her helping her do things and then on her way out she maybe he says something about that replicator and she volunteers to go do something with it like that's that's okay but to make her work on the thermal heater whatever that vaporized the pot roast and she's down on her knees Please no. Not a good look. Please yeah. no, Neelix. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And funny, when they do head off to sickbay, that, what a weird shot. They turn the camera around and it's just a couple of extras smiling, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. likely. Like, just <laughs> not concerned. No, nobody else is calling the doctor or anything. Just standing, smiling. Okay. Yeah. That's just a thing that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Extra plate shot. Yeah. Yeah. But then we do get to sickbay, and I was asking myself as soon as it became problematic, like, haven't they figured out how to beam babies out of there 
for a birth, that just makes sense. I'm glad to see that they use that as a technique here. Mm-hmm. Seems like as soon as there's pain involved, nope, beam that baby out. I'm wondering if it's still a choice in the 24th century regarding natural childbirth. Because I had the exact same thought. And yeah. I'm wondering if just like, you know what, um, that's obviously a choice, you know, during, I guess, the process of reconciling pregnancy and childbirth and I mean, I know that the reason why the doctor did it because there was a serious problem. It's like a breech birth, you know. Yeah, right. That's very, now it's very risky nowadays, but now you can like beam a baby out. But then again, what does beaming do to, you know, new cells? Yeah, new cells. Yeah, know, yeah. So at four minutes, uh, even on DVD, mm-hmm. I, I didn't dare venture into the streaming version of it. But even on <laughs> DVD, the graphic of Voyager approaching the the gas effects plasma rift cloud. Very well done. Ooh, yeah. That was yeah. really nice. The, Very sharp. The lighting was really nice yeah. on the model, that CG mm-hmm. model. Yeah, super good. And look, yeah. I, I'm just going to say right away, they have so many problems in engineering right from the beginning. It's really a shame they got rid of Jonas, that he couldn't be there to help. <laughs> you know? They could have used the extra hands, just saying. You know what? If they could have just stretched out his betrayal like one more episode, a plasma burst could have taken him out. That would have been interesting. Very true. You know? Very yeah. true. Yeah, there were a lot of like mid to close up shots of of the actual cast like doing their own like lurching and falling, and there was one scene where Kate like throws herself to the ground. Yeah, uh, and I'm like, wow, that was her stunt. Yeah, and a lot of them, uh, Tim, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Garrett doing yep. his stunt roles. I mean, they were doing their own stunts in this one. Yeah, very very effective. Very, yeah, look uh, good, realistic. Look good. I do know that uh, Simon Billig had a stunt player for uh for his explosion shot but that that was much more intense you know oh, yeah, for sure yeah. yeah i do want to point out for those of you who are long time uh mission log listeners very important if you're watching the uh the subtitles that you don't make this mistake and confuse the two scission is not the same thing as schism schism although <laughs> Scission, also fun to say. I thought it was. I said, Scission! I I, I had to go back. (laughs) I had to go back. You know, uh, definitely make sure I got that right. Uh, By the way, and you know, this does play into the whole thing about the safety of beaming a baby uh, out of a mother's womb and, you know, making sure that the baby is okay. Still, that said, I fully support gluing little horns onto your baby's forehead. I think that's perfectly fine. So, so new parents out there, get on your cosplay game. Mm -hmm. Yep. Next to next con. Yep. Yep. We know who you are with babies. Yep. We will see you there. Mm -hmm. So Janeway too said that she made a blanket for Sam's baby. So I'm kind of, I was really like wondering, and this is really important. This is a detail that we needed to know. Knitted blanket or quilted blanket. (laughs) And why does Janeway have this skill that we've never heard about? Is it a Janeway two skill? I, I think it's a replicated blanket, and then because oh. she's because she's the captain, nobody questions her. She's like, "I made you this blanket." Everybody's like, "Wow, that that's incredible!" Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm just, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I did that myself at the replicator. And, and then Harry comes in. You know, Captain, the same day that blanket was made, we had a huge power surge in the replicator unit. <laughs> yeah, it was when Tom was having another prime rib and uh, mashed potatoes and uh, right. cream spinach. Yeah, Chicote would cover for Janeway like that. Yeah. So at 16 minutes, now I've I've seen fire and I've seen smoke and I've seen explosions on Voyager mm-hmm. so far, but none in such close proximity to where where Robert and and Kate were yeah. in their chairs and yeah. for a long time too. So again, they really went above and beyond in this episode when it came yeah. to kind of personal risk. Yeah, for sure. Right? Yeah. Here's a stretch, John. Yeah. Now, follow me around the room, folks. So Okay. Uh, when Chakotay was going through a schematic for his quantum level analysis on his Elkar screen, it said four zero seven seven, like so Mash. I saw, they, yeah, yeah. Which, by yeah. the way, they used in Half a Life. We had yeah, David Ogden Stiers sitting down at a console, and one of the Elkars actually has four zero seven seven. They did that for See, him. I missed that reference. Yeah. I'll be honest with you. But you got that reference, which is awesome. But, but now but, they got it here. Yeah. But but what I'm looking at here is there's 40, 77, two sevens, yeah. one for each Voyager. I, perfect. Yes. <laughs> yes. I love that. Yeah. And we did point this out earlier on, but there is a lot 
of techno babble in this episode. <laughs> so much. Especially <laughs> with the whole established comps thing, because I was at a point where I'm like, all right, get on with it already. And I I don't know, would you think that there was some of the uh expanded material that David Livingston had to film to fill in that eight minutes? Well see that that's what's interesting is that Jerry Taylor said that she feels like the filler is so good that you wouldn't even notice what is filler and what isn't. Like you can go back to some TNG stuff and you can find a scene and you go like, oh yeah, Michael Pillar wrote that because yeah. it's the introspective character to character stuff. But this, it just seems like they kept writing and writing. And a lot of those scenes that they wrote were short. They were just used to pad everywhere else. So mm. it's kind of hard to tell. But I will say this. There's a lot of tech. And it feels like if this show were to be written now, there would probably be an abbreviation of that where you'd get more of just a robust graphic explanation for it. Sure. You know? Yeah. yeah. I, I do have to give them kudos for the good use of the dramatic entrance with the appropriate line of dialogue. So here you have Janeway 1 in engineering, way, way near the warp core, saying, we need options. And then Janeway 2, way on the other side, coming around the corridor in the doorway. I agree, Captain. Yeah. <laughs> so big distance between those two characters, but you got to play that dramatic uh, reality there. In that moment... Great use of a whip pan to reveal Janeway's reaction. That is a very underused, fortunately, very underused technique, but super cool there. And I got to say, great, way more sophisticated use of split screen photography sometimes. Like sometimes it was great and and uh, just seamless and other times Eh. So mm. go to uh, I love your time code references. I have my own time code 3210. Mm -hmm. The two Janeways coming into frame up the ladder. Amazing, especially because you had that moving camera shot. They're going around the warp core, like all of that. Very seamless. That was really good. Blocked really well. Oh, so perfect. Yeah. As soon as you get to the two shot at 3226 <laughs> and like the, the the right side so Janeway 2 the non-battle damage Janeway is way more interlaced which mm. means that she is the composited image and that is a bit distracting and also throughout that whole thing very uncomfortable close talking I'm actually surprised that David didn't, you know, for all the moving of the camera that he did, I'm surprised he didn't move the camera around more for that so he could split them up. That being said, though, I always felt that Janeway just has the confidence to be a close talker. Mm, well, that's you true. Know? And when you got two, two confident close talkers like that, watch out. Get just, yeah, exactly yeah. right there. Yeah. <sighs> This this particular scene was like before, like really, like major drama happened. And I'm glad they took a comedic beat there when it was Janeway two, like looked at the monitor and said, "Okay, Lieutenant Torres," and she points back at the monitor behind her and Lieutenant Torres. I love the way that Kate played that. It was just her physical comedy, just the way her body moved, and just kind of yeah. like the way that she like strung that line along. I just thought it was great because, like, literally after that. All the H breaks loose, you know, in this yeah. episode. So. Yeah. yeah, yeah, good stuff. Gotta say, man, way more gruesome Vidian makeup, particularly compared to Life Signs. But, you know, hopefully hopefully the doctor can still see that they are beautiful on the inside. <laughs> um, and also, seriously, Mr. Security, Mr. Vulcan, our very own Tuvok, he's the second one to be shot as soon as they beam on, or not not beam, but but enter uh, Voyager. His plan was just to show up with one other guy with a phaser in hand, and they just yeah. took him out right away. Oh, come on, Tuvok. Made me sad. Yeah. It made me sad. Tom Paris lasted longer. Yeah, you know, he in, did. <laughs> and and Harry Kim, Harry Kim saves the day, you know? Combat role, mm -hmm. right? Yep. I guess flooding the decks with... Anesthesine gas isn't a trick anymore in Starships? Oh. oh. Was that not part of, like, Voyager's deluxe package? Man. You know, no anesthesine gas? I mean, you get the bio-neural gel yeah. packs. That's uh, right, folks. I threw that in there. Janeway didn't right. get to that part of the manual yet. Also, yeah. there were like something like three hundred ish, three hundred and forty seven. Oh, that's that's the number. The <laughs> in Voyager. So check this out. Not only do we have double tech the text in this episode, John, but we had double forty seven references. Yeah, yeah. No Plan B, as in release Baxter. Baxter being Plan B. Yeah, right. I mean, come on. They they already assume that they're beaten. That right. uh, that they're outnumbered. All they had to do is just knock on the gym door and like, hey, 
time to get to work. The dim literally should be encased in glass and like in case of emergency, break, break glass, glass for Baxter. Baxter. Yeah, yeah, I like that mm-hmm. idea. Hey, I know we're going to talk to it uh, to this point later in the show, but uh, Janeway is just really determined to blow up her ship. <laughs> just, you cannot take away the ability to blow up a ship. From uh, Janeway. But I will say this. One of my favorite lines of all time. We're Starfleet officers. Weird is part of the job. Bravo to you, Star Trek, for acknowledging a reality in universe. Don't you hate it when you're walking along and you suddenly find yourself in a less damaged version of your life? Yeah, that's what I thought. We'll get right back to Deadlock after a word from this week's sponsors. Hey, Norman, we are so glad to welcome back Star Trek Wines. They have an incredible lineup of, well, it's really the best of both worlds, if I may use that phrase. (laughs) Fantastic premium wines, but bottled in uh, bottles that look like they came right off the set of your favorite Star Trek shows. I mean, the incredible look of Chateau Picard, we got reintroduced to in Picard season one. And then in season two, they introduced the later vintage, the 25th century vintage with the 2401. And now you can get a limited edition three pack where you get the, uh, I love it. You get the 2386 to 2401, but then you go way back retroactively. Strange New Worlds, Captain Pike is serving the 2221 you get that bottle as well they're gorgeous (laughs) they look so good it's the same bordeaux that you know and love that honestly goes with a lot of different things and you can enjoy them in all three of those also want to point out the Ryzen wines. Um, I love the fact that they care enough about what the fans want they take a lot of Mm -hmm. feedback from fans and they asked okay do you want the Star Trek Enterprise Ryzen wine which is a rosé, or do you want the white that was featured in Picard? Fans were split 50-50, so they gave us both. I mean, how cool is that? And those bottles are beautiful as well, also limited edition. We're in this wonderful space, John, where kind of like um, as adults, we're, we're finally being able to collect uh, these things that are crossing uh, the, the threshold between actual products and things that we've only seen on screen. I mean, let's talk about the Star Trek Wines Canar products. Oh, There's a yeah. wonderful red blend in the product itself. But when you're done with that, you are left with this gorgeous recreation, screen accurate version of the Canar bottle, which you can you know, use at your leisure. And you can do that with some of the other bottles as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the Klingon blood wine is is absolutely fabulous, as are a lot of the other offerings they have there. But here is the here is the wonderful thing. Yeah. So this is something special for our listeners. So during checkout, if you use our special code Roddenberry, you can get this wonderful recreation, a screen accurate version of the UFP, the United Federation of Planets medallion. It's slightly curved, is perfect for applying to a wine bottle or to a mug or to, uh, I guess, you know, maybe one of your tumblers if you like going out for a run and showing yeah. your fandom with that. There you yeah. go. So in order to do so, in order to find all of these fantastic products, in order to expand your collection, visit StarTrekWines.com today. For the limited edition release of Chateau Picard, Rise and Varietals, and many more, use our special code Roddenberry at StarTrekWines.com for an exclusive United Federation of Planets medallion. Hey, Norman, we talked before about how cool Masterclass is. You've been checking out some of their videos. I've been checking out some of their videos. I just went back to the site the other day to uh, to add some more to my, uh, my playlist there. Can I tell you how timely it was to find, I, I kid you not, business <laughs> strategy and leadership from Bob Iger? Wow, that yes. is Yes, <laughs> yes. So with Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, at your own pace. I mean, you can learn how to cook from Gordon Ramsay. That's certainly something that I've been doing. And mm-hmm. uh, let's see, you can learn how to shoot better videos and uh, work with online content by somebody like Marcus Brownlee. That's another one that I really enjoy. They're shot so well. They're really thoughtful and professional without all the sort of noise of like YouTube or uh, another kind of uh, TV, yeah, educational TV show. They're really straightforward and to the point and such a pleasure to watch and listen to. And with over 180 
80 classes from a range of world-class instructors. The, the thing that you've always wanted to do or to know is closer than you think. I mean, we all have our jobs, like we all have our day jobs, and these are the jobs that you know we're supposed to do to help pay the bills. But then there are those kind of professions that we've always wanted to do or try. That's why Masterclass is fantastic, because you can seek out those professions that you've always wanted to try but were too afraid to maybe, or the instructional videos online weren't nearly as polished or produced or as clear. So you can find, say, for example, uh, I've always wanted to be a professional voice actor. So Nancy Cartwright is there, mm-hmm. and voice acting is the instructional video for Masterclass that she is most proficient in. So I've learned a lot already uh, about being a better enunciator and uh, getting into the personalities of being a voice character. Um, I love sleep, so there's the science of better sleep. We all love sleep. Who doesn't love sleep? And Matthew Walker is there on Masterclass to be able to help you with better sleep. But here's the thing. No one performs like Usher. Usher is a performer par excellence, so if you want to learn the art of performance from Usher himself, you can do that also on Masterclass. Man, and you know what? I just saw that you added to your list, and now I need to go back and update my list because Tan (laughs) France, style, style for everyone. I love Tan France, and I need to add that to my list as well. So look, what we're saying, there is so much out there to take, so much there to expand your mind, expand your horizons right there at Masterclass. And I cannot stress this enough. These videos are so well-produced. They're so informative. Um, They're really geared toward members who want lifelong learning in that professional online environment. And we're so happy that Masterclass is offering something, uh, a a great offer to our listeners, where they're actually, this holiday, if you give one annual membership, you get one for free. So go to masterclass.com slash mission log today. That's masterclass.com slash mission log. Give one annual membership and get one for free. Terms apply. Okay, John, so we're going to jump right into Deadlock, which is not it's not an it's not a light episode. It's a very <laughs> dense episode. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things to discuss, and I hope that, you know, you and I find different discussion points on it because again, there's a lot to mine out of this episode, but one of the things that really struck me as interesting wasn't the first part of the episode, wasn't the second part, it's towards the end of the episode. There was a scene where Janeway and Tuvok are having a philosophical discussion about which decision for which Janeway was going to make to destroy the ship in order for the other ship to survive. And I kind of understand the hand-wringing about it from a moral standpoint. I mean, no, no captain should ever like make that decision lightly. Mm-hmm. But it's not the first time that we've actually seen Janeway encounter this decision. We saw it in Dreadnought. You know, and I think that she's also said uh, on other occasions where Maj Kala, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, saying that, you know, if anything happens, we're going to destroy the ship, you know. Right. It's not that she hasn't encountered that decision making before. So why the philosophical hand wringing with Tuvok at the end? Where did that come from, do you think? Hmm. It, is it because... <sighs> Is it because she had to face herself making that decision? Because it, it, it became this I, I, like almost comedic battle of the wills. I'm going to blow up my Voyager. No, I'm going to blow up my Voyager, and you can't stop me from doing it. it it's Janeway being faced with Janeway, who are both – again, I, I, I think it – bears keeping in mind always when discussing this episode that that the point of divergence is only maybe hours before the end of the episode, right? Mm -hmm. So we're not talking about two characters or a set of characters in either of these ships that have lived an entire lifetime differently from whatever iteration you're looking at. They're the same. It's literally just a matter of hours that has split them up and, and made them have a different experience. So both of these Janeways know exactly the determination, the seriousness that the other Janeway would have about making that decision. I have to wonder... Is this a thing that is – look, for dramatic purposes, blowing up your ship is a big deal. But it's also something that Star Trek doesn't hesitate to go to when it needs to serve that dramatic purpose. But I have to wonder, is this the kind of thing that 
in the academy or on the road to captaincy for anybody, does it just become a known thing like, oh, yeah, you may very well be faced with a moment that you have to blow up your ship, so here's how you do it. I, I don't know. Maybe somebody can speak to this in you know, the idea of modern warfare and modern naval ships. Certainly there are examples of captains scuttling their ships in previous wars. But is this just a thing that they say, like, here, here's one more tool in your arsenal. Remember, you can do that if you feel like your back is against the wall that much. I think what's really interesting here is that you've got two seemingly impossible situations. You've got a ship that is being boarded and overrun with people who are about to kill your entire crew for the privilege of having their organs. All mm-hmm. right. And we just say we have to we have to accept the reality of the situation in the show that that's what will happen to everybody on board. They have not been able to fight them off. Then you have the reality of the other Voyager which is just ripping itself apart no matter what they do. They will never right. be able to get that ship back together. So we as the audience have to accept that either one of these situations is untenable, either one of these is going to result in the deaths of everybody on board. So which Janeway gets to win? Right. And you know what? It it is served up in a very Kobayashi Maru style of of a proposition because up until the Vidians, Janeway 2 and Voyager 2 was obviously the choice – for uh, the right choice to survive, you know, so because they were undamaged, the ship was in pristine condition. No one on the, you know, no one on the crew died. The baby was alive. Like everything, right up until the Vidians showed up, that was the ship that needed to survive. I, I thought you that know, was had- one of the most clever turns of the episode. Is right. that we could have said they they could have actually thrown this to the audience and said, "Oh no 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 no!" Now for the rest of the series, we're following Voyager two. This yeah, we're yeah. following this other Voyager. That first Voyager doesn't count anymore. But I thought it was a very clever turn to make us think that the intact Voyager is the one that should or could survive. And there have been other series uh, out there. I, I do believe Farscape is one of those series where they took a character and followed a different version of that same character from that point of view. Mm. And then mm-hmm. returning to the original character later on from that point of view. Yeah. And you're like, wow, okay, that's that's something new because we could have followed this entire Voyager. And for all intents and purposes, we're watching that new version of Harry on this ship. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm going to get to that in a moment because this is the second yeah. time now that Harry has died. Uh, don't forget emanations. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But, yeah. So Harry is like the, he's the Kenny of this show. Yeah. <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. But, you killed Harry. You <laughs> you <bastards. laughs> but I want to get back to your original point, which is about Janeway's. Is it that you're not buying that she would be that conflicted or that maybe uh, let me posit this that that even if she isn't conflicted in the moment about her decision it's the survival it's the coming out on the other end that then forces her to confront the reality of that action because not only did she survive is there a little bit of survivor's guilt to go oh wait a minute that other Janeway that was me actually just did it actually just did it and destroyed that entire ship with that entire crew along with it. So maybe she has to have that philosophical unpacking with Tuvok at that moment. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that either of them were lacking conviction. And I don't think Mm -hmm. that either of them, you know, would would use the self-destruct in this situation, uh, you know, irresponsibly. You know, because, again, until the Vidians came into the scene, there was really only one logical conclusion of which Voyager needed to survive. It had, you know, the one that had the highest expectation uh, Mm -hmm. and survival rate of being able to make it back to Earth. I mean, that's kind of like the mission. And I do love that one Janeway asked the other Janeway to make sure that your crew makes it back home or you get your crew back home. Yeah. Right? That's a promise she has to make to herself. Right. 
right? right. You know, let's none of that. It's kind of like you're talking to your own conscience, you know, uh, you know, in the the most real form, the most physical way, you know, and it's like uh, having a conversation with yourself, but literally, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, and, and very close, yeah. very close, and very, if you're yes, that's way. right, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. got to fit that uh, conversation in four by four by three aspect. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, well, I, so I do want to talk about Harry a little bit here because I was actually just talking to somebody else about how Harry Kim in this episode dies, and then we get the replacement Harry Kim from the duplicate Voyager. And, and again, I, I kept thinking to myself, uh, how long does this episode actually take place in? I, I think it's a day. I mean, it really seems like a day, uh, maybe a few hours. I don't know if it's two or three hours, maybe it's six or eight hours, but it, it seems to be a day. And compare that to Thomas Riker, what happened over years. He actually became a different person. He had a lifetime of experience after, not a lifetime, but a significant chunk of his adulthood played out as a different person with uh, different experiences, different motivations. I think what's so interesting in this version is that that all of the experience of Harry Kim, Kim's times two, mm-hmm. are exactly the same until Voyager is duplicated. And even then, the differences are that one ship goes through hell and the other one doesn't. And even for the one that does, Harry isn't actually around long enough to experience much of that. <laughs> Sorry, Harry, yeah. Kenny, right? Yeah. So Harry has a little bit of something to work out about existence and experience and where he is really home and who he really is. But but honestly, it's about the same. Now, Let's switch gears because we're all thinking about Harry Kim and we're all thinking about how he died and we have a replacement Harry Kim. Let's change our focus to Samantha Wildman. Yep. I cannot even begin to imagine what in in reality, the reality of the show, I, I don't know what we're going to get to in terms of character exploration and character depth. This is an episodic show, so we don't always get deep, long character arcs. What is going to happen with her? She literally lost her baby and has to cope with that grief. And then mm-hmm. suddenly there is this bizarrely only happens in science fiction, miraculous thing that happens where a duplicate of that same baby is put into her arms mere hours after she lost that same child it's time for joy absolutely how does samantha see this child in her eyes the same does she always walk around with a piece of doubt or regret or shame or does she have to work very hard to just get this out of her mind? This is where you need a Deanna Troy. I want to address the Harry situation first. Because, sure. And I mean, actually, I want to address both situations under the same kind of premise and the point of I think that in this episode, the deaths of, of Harry and the deaths of um, baby Wildman, I think, are just treated a little too cavalierly. Mm-hmm. And I think that they're resolved a little too cavalierly in the same way where it's just kind of like – you know, I, I I understand that you have to end on a note of of levity because it was a very serious episode. But yeah. just weird is what we do. Let's move on to the next episode. Yeah. Remember in in um in emanations, Janeway gave Harry like days off of work to be able to reflect on what happened to him. Yes. You know, yeah. and it is the same Harry, but it's in the in the process of the, the perception of what happened to him. He died. He came back. He was transported from one place to another. But it was. It was it was phrased in a way that he actually did die and was resurrected and was turned to the ship. He died like Harry died. Harry Kim Alpha. Yeah. We're going to use or if Harry Kim one from Voyager yeah. one yeah. died and he sucked out into space and was killed. And and not only was Harry Kim one sucked out into space and died. He Harry Kim two now lives with the knowledge that the rest of his crew all died in the fiery explosion of Voyager after Captain Janeway to set the self-destruct. See, and there would be a difference if when, when the diversions ended and when Voyager 1 was the, the ship that remained, if something happened to him where he didn't remember that or, you know, there was just some type of spatial energy phenomenon that just made him 
forget about him being you know divided into mm-hmm. this other ship mm-hmm. but he remembers he specifically says i know you're not my captain i know this isn't my ship so how do you move forward with that how do you reconcile that there may be parts of his existence on the other ship that may just not be exactly the same mm-hmm. as the ship that he's on. And all of a sudden, it's just, okay, sure, you're our Harry now. You've been replaced. It's kind of like I'm not a big fan of people who immediately replace you know, the, their, their pet with another pet in order to get over the grief so quickly. I mean, you have to let that grief sit, in my opinion. It's a you know? mirror existence where everything is exactly the same except six inches to the left. Right. You know? <laughs> and I think that it can be kind of glossed over a little bit with Harry, but when it comes to Sam, yeah. right, you know, we've heard so many, um, you know, so many instances where a mother knows, mm-hmm. right? A mother yeah. knows the difference. In, in Jay Mokos Rosinski's movie Changeling, that was directed by Ron Howard, starring Angelina Jolie, mm-hmm. it was about a mom who lost her son, whose son was kidnapped, and then her son was replaced by the LA Police Department right. in like the late 1920s, early 1930s, somewhere around there. Right. And she knew. She knew without a shadow of a doubt that it wasn't her son because a mother knows. Yeah. Now you put this in the Sam Wildman's predicament and she's like, no, this isn't my baby. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's not that she's going to love the baby any less, but she has to be able to live with the grief and process that. And I think that this is the biggest issue with Star Trek episodes of, of that era mm-hmm. is that they aren't willing to let us wallow in that misery. Yeah. Well, and and that's the thing. Samantha Wildman actually had to live through that moment. She had to Mm -hmm. live through the struggle to keep that baby alive for as long as they could. She had to live through saying goodbye. She had to live through everybody around her, consoling her and grieving with her. It's not just a thing that is a hypothetical. She went through it and then to be handed this other baby oh no no this is yours really this is the same wink because we went through this weird anomaly that caused us to split this is good enough i i i can't even begin to imagine what the 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 psychological reality of that kind of thing would be of course we're not dealing with reality here but we are dealing with characters who presumably have emotional lives on screen so much as the script gives it to them and i know we're not dealing with reality but i also think that we're we're dealing with an intelligent emotionally um connective audience yeah with these characters exactly especially with with samantha wildman because we've been waiting for her to give birth to this baby and we oh for like six years Yeah, yeah yeah And now yeah. we finally, you know, it finally happens and this tragedy happens and it is powerful and it is central to this story, right? But then all of a sudden, again, you know, with, with Star Trek of a certain era, you wave the hand over that episode and fabricate everything is going to be okay. And I do think that it takes a lot of, of the emotional investment that we've built up in this episode and, and kind of it, it disrespects Mm-hmm. I think that level of commitment and connection that we have that we spent for about what the last 40 something odd minutes to get to this point yeah. where it's just, I think it's, it's just, it's not framed in the way that I think that we needed to have it finished so that we had, we ourselves as the audience had some type of emotional closure to it. You know, this is one of those weird, and again, in the mission log style, we have not watched ahead. So we don't know what's coming in the next episode or the one after true, that or after that. Yeah. But I'm so glad that you pointed out, glad that we both pointed out emanations, not just because we had Harry Kim die already, but because even for that moment, you had the captain acknowledging that what he went through was something so strange that he has to have time to process it. And if he needs help to get there, presumably there is somebody on Voyager who can help him with that. It it seemed like our attention was on teching the tech, solving the problem. And here's this weird thing that happened to Harry. Meanwhile, I just, I I can't even put the pieces together on what this would do to a mother in this situation like Samantha Wildman. Welcome to Voyager, home of the multiverse's first pandimensional adoption agency. Don't ask where we get the kids. It's a really long story that requires charts and graphs. So here we are at the end of Deadlock, and one thing's for certain, after 
all of our observations and discussions. I don't think we're necessarily deadlocked on how we feel about it. Oh, oh hey. Nicely done there. Um, all right. So uh, for those of you who know what we do, we're going to get into what we do. For those of you who are new to us, we take a look at uh, what we've talked about and see if the episode holds up over time or over the course of when it first was released. And then do we uh, or have we found any morals, meanings, or messages contained therein the episode, as we say at the beginning of the show. So let's start with you, John. Uh, I know that we're not deadlocked on a position, so <laughs> All right. how do you feel about it? I, I mean, look, th- this episode, as I kind of stated early on, it's high concept mind bleepery from Brannon, and I'm here for it. I- I'm here for most of the things that he does that are high concept mind bleepery. Really nicely produced teaser and act one, hmm. because the-, the teaser, it is long, as you pointed out, and we spend most of that time in the relative quiet and calm. But then once you get over the hump, the camera is almost constantly in motion. The action is high. The damage to the ship, really well done. I I have to assume that when they shot this, they shot all the Voyager 2 stuff first and then dressed everything for the Voyager 1 destruction shot. This is the only way to do it to make it work and make it make sense. Uh, Star Trek overall and Voyager in particular, they have this reputation for the overuse of the reset button. And that is very fair criticism, especially when you feel like there are no stakes to the action and our characters aren't in real danger, as we were discussing earlier. Um, An episode like this one, though, it really skirts that line. There are scenes that are truly surprising, like early on, the death of Wildman's baby and Harry getting blown out into space. So when it's done right, An episode like this one isn't so much about us knowing that our main characters will be okay, but it's about the how that then becomes interesting. That becomes the game that we're playing along with the episode. And there are some good reveals in this along the way. I think, as I mentioned earlier, the best twist is that we think it's Voyager 1 that gets destroyed and you know, erase from our memories forever. But then they, they cleverly and clearly kind of changed our alignment to understand why it is Voyager 2 that gets destroyed. So uh, think of it this way. Because Brannon has described a show or an episode like this one, as he will, and episodes that we cover in the future, you do this as a writer. You take the worst case scenario and you start there. And it's actually a pretty cool trick then for a writer to start there and let the story unfold. So I, I got to hand it to him for starting with that premise. Where where do you then lead the audience after you've shocked them with the worst case scenario? To this episode's detriment, there's a lot of tech the tech. There's just a lot of techno babble, and it's hard to get past. I think that would be done in a very different way now mm-hmm. if an episode like this were done now. And normally also, you know, I think I'm with you that the seriousness of self-destruct and the investment that we have in the characters is too much to be just an easy solution to a problem. But, but this is an episode that to me is about the mind-bending concept. It's about the tech situation they're in. And maybe, just maybe, there's a little bit of that existential uneasiness that we're meant to feel through Harry Kim. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it's all right. I, I think we just get to revel in the oddness of it all and maybe the satisfaction of seeing Voyager blow up real good. So... This is a very good version of this kind of episode. And now that particular kind of episode may not really push characters forward or have deep ideas to explore uh, in Voyager's unique narrative. But that's okay if you know that that's what you're getting. Now, would this same type of story have worked in Next Gen? Absolutely. And that's not such a bad thing. Because it shows that this is a very self-contained, again, high-concept sci-fi story. You plug in the characters that you want, and it just sort of works. What about you, sir? Well, yeah, I mean, I agree there. I think that this is a great filler episode. And I think that uh, mm-hmm. it's it's a workhorse, serviceable episode. You know, it's entertaining where it needs to be entertaining. Uh, it has some really interesting, you know, high tech-the-tech concepts. 
And um, for a Brandon Braga script, I think it's actually uh, probably like more complete than, say, mm. Threshold was. Right. <laughs> no, no kidding. <laughs> so by comparison, and uh, also David Livingston, I think his direction uh, on this episode is just really oh. at breakneck pace. It was fantastic. Knocked it out of the park. You always yeah. feel like you're on the edge of a lot of different uh, scenarios. And uh, I think that if, if I had to have one criticism, I think that we just don't spend enough time, again, with some of the more dramatic emotional moments that we need to reflect on, especially with Sam Wildman's baby, either the death of her baby or the replacement of her baby. You know, I think that's something yeah. that even more than Harry, something that I think would have at least uh, ended maybe the arc of uh, Sam Wildman's character up to a point, giving us a little bit more emotional satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that you and I have seen as a little bit of a problematic pattern with Voyager so far, no matter how scarred and damaged either the crew or the ship or both are in the next episode, we don't really feel that. Uh, yeah, uh, as right. you know, as a, an impact like on the series itself, with the exception of a very ham-fisted B storyline with Tom Paris that really didn't play out the way that we wanted it to. <laughs> nope. But it doesn't mean that uh, they can't do something like that again. They can't add a soft serialization to other characters in this series. Harry Two is going to be a very interesting journey to look forward to now, especially if we're looking or tracking any of his own personality quirks that maybe the other Harry didn't have. And I think Mm. that's important to note because he did say, I know I'm not your Harry and you aren't my captain. This isn't my ship and this isn't my crew, which means Tom Paris Mm. is not my best friend as I knew him. Ooh, that's a good point. All right. We'll have to see how that picks up in the next episode. Those are smaller details. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, that or, or issues that we can look at, you know, later on. The production in this episode is, is, is outstanding. It's absolutely outstanding. And you're right. Yeah. Like, you know, the destruction sequence of Voyager 1 versus uh, how the intercut between that and Voyager 2 is very believable. Again, some of those stunts and some of the risk that the actors put themselves through, especially mm-hmm. with like those dramatic fire, you know, engulfing scenes on the bridge uh, that I think were a little too close to a Robert Beltran. But yeah. maybe he was just like, you know what? <laughs> right. I can take it. I'll just sign off on my SGA and we'll move forward. Right. But I do think that because there was so much tech in this episode, we lost something that we established with Kess early on when it came to her using her telepathic ability uh, to make connections with other people, especially Tuvok. Instead of doing all this tech to tech with the comms work, I'm putting on my writer's hat now. Warning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Fine. What if she was able to use her telepathic ability to communicate to Tuvok through the rift. Oh. And okay. now you have this this wonderful extension of Kess being on Voyager 2 for a visit. Well, not, not for a specific reason, but now with a purpose, as opposed to yeah. I'm just on the ship because I ran through a corridor. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because that's all she really did, and they lost an opportunity to allow Kess to grow just a little bit further with that Ocompan ability, right? And it doesn't, you don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but that no. eight minutes, John, that you said that, mm-hmm. that they had to stretch out and fill certain scenes, mm-hmm. that could have been part of that eight minutes. So just that something to been think about. Very cool. Right. That would have been very cool. Just something right, to think put about. It, yeah. Put it in the novelization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So look, I mean, we both agree that this is an action heavy, kind of fun episode. You said it. It's a workhorse episode. It's a serviceable episode. And I think that's fine. But then there are missed opportunities for some growth, some deeper introspection character stuff. Did they leave room for morals, meanings, messages? I'm not sure that this is an episode that really relies on that or really needs it. But it did bring to mind another episode that I think we all feel very highly about, and that is Yesterday's Enterprise from The Next Generation. Did that one have a deep meaning, moral, or message? Well, not necessarily. But again, it was high concept premise that had a very similar theme at the end. So here, Janeway has made a decision about what's best for her crew and what's best for the other crew who may have a chance to make it out alive if they are given that chance. (sighs) 
Captain Garrett had to sacrifice the Enterprise C and her crew to protect the future. Her crew knew that they were going into an unwinnable situation where they would die, but they knew that the sacrifice was an example of the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few. And I guess here the question is the same. Ultimately, who has the better chance of survival? And even if it's, well, the numbers are equal, if the crews of Voyager are equal, can we tip the scales to say that, all right, these these remaining crew plus these two, <laughs> they had the better chance to survive. So their needs outweigh ours. This is the best solution forward. You know, the interesting about that uh, thing about that, John, is if or when the Enterprise-C closed that rift or when Voyager mm. 2 exploded, that reality, those people would never know their sacrifice actually worked. Yeah, right. You know, that's like the emotional right. impact of something like that, where we as the audience were like, well, they would never know. Yeah. And that heroism yeah. would go kind of like unrewarded in a way, you know, except in yeah. the hearts and minds of the people that survived. And that, that brings me to uh, this larger notion of um, kind of like the way they, they treat death and life and death together, as Kurt said. <laughs> yeah. In the final scene of this episode, and we've made mention of this before, and I think it's worth mentioning again one last time. Janeway says, Mr. Kim, we're Starfleet officers. We're just part of the job. This is about Harry knowing and admitting that he's not completely in tune with this new ship. He knows he's not a part of this ship. He wasn't a member of this original crew. He was supplanted mm -hmm. for reasons that Janeway, too, uh, you know, she had. She said that it was only fitting that Harry and baby uh, Wildman would supplant mm -hmm. those who they lost on Voyager 1. So the big question is... Is this, in a way, a very strange callback to what we have seen in Star Trek before, specifically with Spock? Mm. Now, follow me around the room, people. Spock, after the events of the Wrath of Khan, isn't the same Spock because he was able to cheat death as a result of specific circumstances. He's no longer Spock 1. For all intents right. and purposes, he is Spock 2. Harry 2 is very similar in this respect. Like Spock 2, Harry 2 is exactly the same as Harry 1 in every detail, except for the knowledge that he belonged to another ship, another crew. So if he knows that, then he knows that Tom isn't his best friend, per se. He knows his relationship with Janeway 1 isn't the same, even though weird is part of the job. Hmm. Which brings me to more of like a meaning, more of an observation than a moral or message. Is this what it means to be part of Starfleet? And is Janeway's response flippant or matter-of-fact? I personally haven't really come to terms with it, but it seems like after all they've been through so far, what else are you going to say? Nothing other than Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com, and for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Innocence. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. If you try getting sucked out into space, you'll like it, and wallow in a deadlock holiday. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.